Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In today's podcast, we interview Roland Sigvart from the Autonomous Systems Lab at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, Switzerland. Octopus, Pygmalion, La Malice, Alice, Nanoc, Robox, Scrappy, Shrimp, Solero, Space Cat, Servitor, InSpot, Sky Sailor, OS4, and Smarties. I guess that once you've made that many autonomous robots, it's only natural that you write a book entitled Introduction to Autonomous Mobile Robots. Luckily, we get to hear all about it from the author himself. Hi, Roland. Welcome to Talking Robots. Hello, Sabine. Your lab has developed up to 18 robots over the years, from the tiny cockroach robots described in, in the previous podcast with José Haloy, to autonomous cars and from bird-sized microhelicopters to solar planes. It seems that the main crosspoint between all these robots is that they're intended to, to be fully autonomous in complex environments. Uh, what is your main interest in designing autonomous systems? Our main goal is, I think, to try to really find systems from the design point of view, to, to start with the design to make intelligent systems. I'm strongly believing that you cannot uh, compensate for bad designs by computer programs. So our interest is really to uh, define first the challenging tasks and then bring the robot, to design the robot in, as an entire system, including sensors, the whole mechanical design, and the controller to do the best to have somewhat uh, very autonomous systems. Do you have examples of such autonomous robots or a certain type of autonomous robot you're interested in? For example, we did a lot of work with European Space Agency where the, the goal is to have systems which are well adapted to rough terrain. And for doing this uh, um, and all, still consuming a very low energy, you have to build a mechanical system which is well adapted to this. And so we started on the mechanical design and then added on the different uh, sensors uh, to do full navigation, full autonomous navigation. But the mechanical design was very important to get good results for this application. I imagine, for example, in the case of a, a space robot, there must be a lot of uh, challenges which are also similar to challenges you have in the other autonomous robot systems. What would be these challenges? Probably the biggest challenge in the space robotics is that you have to imagine you're, you're flying up there a system and you have no chance to fix something once it's up. Of course, up to now, the European Space Agency didn't bring up robots there, but hopefully in 2013 there will be a robot up where we have some contribution on it. And you have to build it really in a way that you are absolutely sure that it will operate safely. And on Earth, you still can interfere if once there is a broken pr uh, uh, part in the, in the robot on space, you cannot do it. Can you give us a little more details on what this uh, space robot looks like? Of course, space robots have, typically they have to run with very low energy because you, the only energy you have in long run is, is the, the solar power on, the, on, on Mars, for example. And so it looks, it typically it's wheel-based and it's not a walking robot because this takes much more energy. So it has six wheels. It uh, looks somewhat similar to what uh, NASA already has on Mars. So it's more or less a next generation of, of this type of robots, um, uh, which we, we develop, which is a little bit more adapted to the environment. And what 
we are trying to push is that we would like to have tactile wheels. So uh, humans are very good because we, we feel the ground and we have developed uh, wheels which can also feel the ground. And this allows then much easier to, to understand that probably you are blocked with one of the wheels and that you have to stop and go on back, back out uh, backwards. And uh, this, uh, I think, makes a new way to, to uh, go into rough terrain. If you look NASA today, they are pretty much afraid to go into rough terrain. Even if this, these robots could go over somewhat difficult terrain, they're trying typically to always avoid the difficult terrain and go on a flat, flat ground, which is okay. But on the other side, you probably will miss some spots where, where you can do very nice measurements and you will probably you can learn more. And hopefully in the future, we, we can take more risk with these robots because they have more understanding and feeling of the environment and where they are and how the wheels are interacting with the ground. Is it assigned to a specific application or it can be equipped with any type of sensor? It can be equipped with any type of sensor. The European uh, mission is uh, uh, has foreseen to have a, a pretty sophisticated drill so that you can go deeper in, in the ground. So this is uh, something specific, uh, specific about this mission at the moment. Let's look at another autonomous robot you created. In Switzerland, there's a huge national expo every 40 years. And the last one was in 2002 and I happened to be there and... Luckily, I was able to get a guided tour from one of your most visible achievements, the Robox robot. Can you present this robot to us? So actually, the goal of this exhibition was a little bit to show the big public what the future could be in intelligent machines. So the robots we designed for this exhibition were on one side um, an exhibition example themselves. So they, they were the, probably the chance for people to get the first interaction with really a fully autonomous robot moving around in the same space with the humans. On the other side, the robot had also to show other systems, which are uh, uh, robots, industrial robots. So they had two main goals. So the main interaction part of the robot was that the robot was speaking to people, inviting them to join them, to, to follow them, and to go to different uh, exhibitions. And uh, on the other side, Robert had also to move the people as fast as possible through the exhibition, which was actually a challenge. And why should they move fa as fast as possible? This is a max mass exhibition, where actually the goal was to have 500 people going through the exhibition every hour. So there was also a wish that the robot is not too interactive, not too attractive to humans, so that the humans already also go out of the room uh, at, uh, after about 15 minutes again. And concretely, what did these robots look like? What were their sensors and actuators? So we tried to build, uh, we call the typical functional-based robot. So we defined first the functions, which was mainly tour guide robot and somewhat an interaction and speaking to people. And we built then the robot uh, based on its functions. So in the top part, it looked like somewhat a, a face. We had two eyes with uh, pen-tailed cameras uh, and uh, pen-tailed eyes and eyebrows. So you could, could have expressions that, that the robot could speak to people and could really show people that, that uh, the robot realized that people are around. Then we had a, sp a spoken um, a speech synthesizer so the robot could speak to people. And then on the lower part, it was a, a more or less a big box. This is the reason why we called it Robox, um, which was moving around and which had all the necessary equipment to do navigation, precise navigation in an environment where, have, where you have typically hundreds of people around. And so it's very tough to survive in such an environment. And so we built the bottom part rather heavy and the top part pretty, pretty fine and, and interactive. So it's, it looked like, uh, like a face um, attracting people. 
What were the biggest challenges, either technical or scientific, in creating this robot for the exhibition? Technically, it probably was that we are, uh, we were, and we are still a research lab, and we are not used to build products which are can survive really over a long time. So this was was quite a challenge uh, to build something which is can survive the hardest of attack of young kids uh, moving around in the exhibition. Uh, scientifically, it was probably the, the question, how can you do something attractive which is not boring, but which um, still um, is not too complex that you, you cannot never really do it. Research typically presents results which are not feasible for an exhibition. It's typically one-shot um, results which show what the future could be, but there's still a lot of work to do uh, up to its final implementation. And so we could not show the final or the, the final research results of today because they are not reliable enough. So we had to find a way to, to be attractive enough and not to bore people and, and to attract them to interact with robots. In this exhibition, how did the robots find their way? So in principle, first of all, the robots have to know where they are. And what, how we did this is that they can extract lines which are the walls in the environment. So they have a model of the environment. And then they try to find with their laser sensor, with distance measurement, the balls, and then co compare it with the map. And so they know where they are. And the, and the nice thing about using line features is that all the people around robots were not in the, are typically not identified as lines. So this system will automatically filter out people which is actually a big challenge because most of the sensor will see people and not the walls. But we can then, if we use this model of, of lines only, we can filter out and we are, have, uh, we are good enough to localize the robot if we only see very small segments of the wall. Then the second thing is, of course, navigation. And so there, the robot really have to, to look locally where the people are and then find a way go, to go through it. And this was a big challenge because people have the tendency to block the robot. So we had actually also a system which actually pushed pretty strongly against the people so that the robot started to hoop. And this was actually interesting that this worked extremely well. People are used with, with the cars to, to the, the, this sound. And so when the robot made this, makes the same sound, people automatically understand the robot wants to go forward. Do you think you could easily adapt these robots to another expo? Yes, so there are actually uh, two of these robots uh, now still alive in, in two exhibitions uh, which have been installed by our spin-off company. Most robots tend to break down, so how did you manage to have 10 robots which were active for 10.5 hours per day, seven days a week over a period of five months? So we had actually, from a mechanical point of view, they were pretty robust. So the biggest issue we had, for example, is that we had the hairs running into the wheels and we had to clean them from time to time. We had people on spot which actually did so, uh, so, um, overlook the, the robots. Um, we had much more problem on, more on the software side. So we had the interaction system running on, on, on Microsoft. Um, uh, system and this uh, PC had sometimes some problems like crash. We had on the other side a second piece, um, computer which was running the navigation system and obstacle avoidance, collision avoidance. This were, was extremely reliable. This was running on Linux or Xorber on uh, then time and today it would be Linux. And uh, this was very important also because then uh, this uh, can be dangerous if the robot runs into people. So we had to have a, a very safe system on this side. How did people react to these robots? I think in general they, they liked it quite a lot. Quite much, a lot. 
The, the funny thing is what we learned is that the, the people like to play with the robot. So they, they like to provoke uh, interaction. And this is actually a critical issue because interactive, really interactive robots is not so easy to, to build it. So the robot is very difficult to understand what people really want, what their intention is. And uh, so people always like to, to play with the robots. And uh, sometimes it was successful, sometimes probably it failed because the robot get really a little bit uh, out of control because it doesn't, didn't understand what people wanted. Do you have an anecdote or an example of how children react uh, compared to how older people react? So there were f a couple of funny, funny elements. So one, one very interesting experience we have seen a lot of time is that they wanna they played with the robot on the fastest feedback, and the fastest piece feedback is actually security stop and obstacle avoidance. And we had bumpers all around. The it was like a curtain around the robot, and these uh, bumpers were really pushed by people very often. And then we had a security stop button, a red button. And there was once an experience we have seen that uh, two older ladies were looking at the robot. They looked, they spotted the red button. And I think they thought, what is this button for? So one went to the robot, pushed the button and, and run away again, like little kids, to see what the robot did. And of course, when you push the red button, the, the robot will flash and, and then somebody had to, has to interfere and, and liberate the robot again. Do you think people were satisfied with the, the interaction they had with these robots? There was a survey which was conducted to get some feedback uh, from, the, from the people. Yes, we had a survey which was on one side a little bit on what the interaction and what the ex about the exhibition. I think the, the biggest part of the people were really satisfied. Um, some were a little bit disappointed because they have seen science fiction movies, uh, which shows much more. But the survey was also about more or less the future of, of robotics and about the future of the closeness between humans and machines. And there we had really interesting results. For example, the extreme point was that we have seen out of about 2,500 people, uh, 12% said they would consider to have a mobile phone directly implanted to their brain so they don't have to carry it around so they directly can phone, which was surprising to us. And uh, which shows probably that you, uh, people on the, the, the societies is less afraid of technology than we think. What would you say you learned from this endeavor? I think we, we learned uh, a lot uh, on the side that uh, interaction is, uh, has, uh, we have to learn how robots have to interact. Interaction is, is a very complicated thing. And if you want to go further with these type of robots, we have to come up with new ways how they can interact. Interaction has also been very dynamic. So people are not willing to wait for, for giving a feedback. On the other side, what we also learned is that I think society is extremely open. But this was very positive, at least for me. I think it, it's really a change in the last 10, 15 years that they are not afraid of this technology. They are not afraid that robots will take over power. So I think really they, they're very open, even all elderly people, they were really went to the robots, interacted with them, played with them, and were not afraid. And I think this is a positive sign. This allows us really to go further. And once their technology is available, really to implement this type of systems for the help and the, for the good of the society. A large part of the research done in your lab is concerned with embedding robots with perception and representation cap capacities that can cope with complex settings, such as the settings that were at the Expo. What is your approach in solving the problem of robot perception or localization? 
Probably in, in general, our approach is not so different uh, yeah, as the mainstream. So at one point, you have to have some sort of a map of the environment. You have to have a representation. And some people call it a map. Some people call it probably differently. I think the big question is now how this map should be built. So some people speak about topological map, geometric map. I think today we have very good solutions. Um, uh, that's not our, in our, only in our lab of geometric maps so that robots can really move around and have precise um, positioning where they are. But on the other side, the robots have no clue what really they are, are surrounded from. With. So it's really important that we have a next step so the robot understand where they are. So it doesn't uh, make sense that the robot knows that there is something in front of him. He has to know that this is a person, this is a chair or a table. And there, I think there are still a lot of things to do. And at the moment, we are more to go, going towards this direction. So trying to, to have some sort of a functional description of the environment so that we have a representation which makes sense also for a human so that you can really tell the robot, go and grab me a, a Coke. And if you think of what this means is that robot has to understand the concept of a Coke and has to understand that the Coke is in the fridge typically and has to understand that the fridge is typically in the kitchen. And they have to understand what, in a typical setup, where you can define the kitchen. And if you think of this, I think we are still extremely far from understanding this. Today, if you have a geometric map, you can the robot can go to the kitchen, but has no clue what really the kitchen is. And how are you trying to solve this problem? So we are trying to... to I think it's, it's still very simple in the preliminary approaches, but to, um, uh, on one side, to do some progress on object recognition so that you, have, you can really classify the elements you, you see in the environment. And we are doing this by fusing different sensor information, for example, laser depth information with, with camera information, and then um, trying to um, build up some sort of a, a, re a relation map between objects. So, for example, this at the end is somewhat probably a statistical map, typically to say that if you know you can uh, recognize a Coke bottle and then you, you make some statistics how this Coke bottle is related with, it, with its environment, and then you probably see that typically the Coke bottle is either in the fridge or on a table, then you have at least some, some information about the Coke bottle which goes towards uh, some more um, semantic information of of course, it's still pretty far, but I think this is the, the, the starting point, at least from our point of view. So it's more on the side of probabilistic uh, robotics? It's somewhat a probabilistic um, uh, concept, but uh, in, in principle, if it's pr we can even start with without having too much of probability in, in solved. I think it's, it's really trying to build concepts. And uh, to build concepts, you have to probably think of where can you start off. And our starting point is pretty easy and simple. It's to try to have relations. So to say a Coke bottle is, is on a table or a, a, a door is next to a window or whatever. So that you have more or less not a precise geometric relation, but you have a information how they are related. In the first step, it's, it's um, uh, physically in, in space. And the second thing is then also uh, in a temporal relation. So that you, for, for example, know that the door is open at, at 8 o'clock in the morning and not in the evening. Okay, let's talk a bit about the future now. What robot would you like to see developed in the near future? My personal preference is, is really that we, we can hopefully build robots which can help society, especially probably elderly society, elderly, uh, aging society, is, is probably a big issue. And of course, the question is what type of robots these people need. And I would guess uh, this, these robots are probably not at all the robots we, we think of. 
These are probably machines which, which don't appear at, at all as a robot, but still do a lot of good for the society so that elderly people can still have a very uh, nice life. They can stay at their home much longer than, than uh, they can do. A typical example could be that if you have cars which can help people drive, then old people can drive much longer and they can visit their family and their friends and, and don't, don't stand, stay at home. So they can have a much better life. What are the main challenges in seeing this happen? I think it's, it's uh, probably the, the first question is really, can we have to understand what really the needs are. At the moment, a lot of people are working in, in research in different direction of uh, human robots or personal robots, whatever. Uh, but nobody is really asking the precise question, what do we need? I think first we have to understand what do we, we need. And then we can see what the current technology, how they can fit with the needs and hopefully then find also defined future steps in research to, to follow up on these needs. And 20 years from now, in which fields will robotics have had the biggest impact on our lives? I would say um, there is probably the biggest field what I think in the next 20 years is even not in the, the society or not exposed to the open public. It's probably more in, in services, in industrial services, for example, inspection of, of uh, big machinery and stuff like this, reparation of big machinery. In our society, I think we will have more and more machines which will not be recognized as robots, but which, but which will have a lot of robotics technology. I'm convinced that cars will be much more intelligent in 20 years from now. We will have machines at home which will help us to, under, to, to get access to them and not um, uh, probably uh, uh, push people off like, like uh, simple video records which are extremely difficult to handle. And I think all these devices can offer more, but they need probably the robotics technology in order to make progress. Thanks, Roland, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Thank you. That was Roland Sigvard on Autonomous Systems. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.com. Dot CH.